Today we'd like to talk about God's triumphant kingdom, the eternal destiny of all of God's people is the new heavens and new earth. Uh, three great passages of scripture focus upon this theme. Isaiah 65 and 2 Peter chapter 3 and Revelation 21. And that sort of spills over into chapter uh, 22. We'll touch briefly on each one of these three passages. Uh, we'll take them in that order. First of all, the book of Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah the Messianic Prophet, chapter 65 and verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now notice God is going to have a new heaven and new earth. It doesn't mean that this earth is going to be annihilated but I think the thought is it's going to be rearranged or recreated or regenerated. That's the idea. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4 says uh, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The earth abides forever. The earth is going to be cleansed and made new. The curse will be removed when Christ comes back in power and great glory. And there'll be no more sickness, pain, sorrow, or death for the human race. No more briars and thorns and thistles and insects on the earth. The earth will be made new, uh, just like it was when it came from the hands of the Creator. The Bible makes this abundantly clear. God's going to create, notice he says here, I think the word is used in the sense that so the psalmist uses it in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The earth's not going to be destroyed. It's going to be cleansed and made new. The same kind of regeneration that we experience when we come to Christ. We're all born and conceived in sin. We come to Christ and we're born again or made new or regenerated. So our regenerated lives will have a regenerated kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. Scripture says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So as believers, we are new creatures in God's eyes and will have a new home, a new earth in the age to come. Then in Isaiah 65, verse 8, the next verse says, For be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her, joy, and her people a joy. <clears throat> the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will go along with the new earth or the kingdom that is to come. Notice the song we sang a few minutes ago focused on the coming kingdom. The holy city in New Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven. God's going to have a new city. Jerusalem is God's city. God has chosen to place his name there forever. Sometimes people talk about the eternal city as Rome or someplace, you know, or France or um, London or Washington, D.C. No, no, no. The eternal city is Jerusalem, God's holy city. 
that comes down from God out of heaven. And that will be the eternal capital of God's eternal kingdom. Then in chapter 16, in Isaiah again, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. The new earth is going to remain and all of God's people of all the ages will be gathered into that kingdom. We'll have immortality. Uh, we'll not be subject to death or pain or sickness or sorrow. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down on the new earth. Now, the next passage I'd like to share with you is Second Peter chapter 3. This was written by one of the twelve apostles, as all of you know, I'm sure. The Apostle Peter, he uh, was one of the twelve. Uh, he had difficulty getting started in the Christian life, it seems, but he got on the right track and became a great worker for the Lord. In the Gospels, we see Peter in training. In the book of Acts, we see Peter witnessing. In his epistles, we see Peter teaching. <laughs> this is just the development that Peter had in his life, sort of much like uh, we do in our lives today. 2 Peter chapter 3, of verse 3 is probably familiar to most of us. The apostle says, in the last days, scoffers will come, you know. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The apostle Peter says, in the last days, people will scoff and poke fun at the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come again in power and great glory. Peter says these scoffers will come, so, you know, many people today, if you talk to them, that Christ is going to literally and visibly come back to this earth again, the way he was treated the first time, you think he'd come back? Peter says these kind of people will come, but don't you believe them? Christ is coming again. There's a field of thought called uniformitarianism, that nothing changes, always the same day after day. Well, Peter reminds him that God did intervene and change things in the time of the flood. Remember that big splash back there? Things did change. And God's going to intervene in the affairs of men again when Christ comes in power and great glory. Notice verse uh, 5, he says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The world that then was. Now the word uh, world here uh, doesn't mean uh, three planets. The three I've mentioned here we're going to get into. It doesn't mean three planets pancaked on top of each other. No, that's not the idea. It's three time periods on this planet. <laughs> the first one, Peter says, before the flood. We call it the antediluvian world, or the people who lived before the flood. And Peter says, if you think things don't change, what about the flood? A universal flood. God did intervene in the affairs of men. Here's the record. And then he goes on to say, they are willingly ignorant of it. Verse 5, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Verse 6, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. That was in the days of Noah. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
Now he's speaking of this age in which we live right now. What's its destiny is to be judged and cleansed and made new. Verse 8, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. My friends, I want to tell you that God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to his son and experience his grace and mercy, uh, forgiveness of sin and newness of life, and assurance of eternal life in the age to come. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, or as the NIV says, will be laid bare. Verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Seeing this day is coming, what kind of life should we live? The word conversation in the King James Version means conduct or behavior. Seeing that this order of things is going to pass away off this stage in a fiery storm, what kind of life should you live? That's what he's saying. What kind of life? And then verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And I love verse 13. Beyond that burning day that Peter speaks of, nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. This is the hope of all believers. We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, the home of the righteous, as one uh, translation says. The word heaven is used in three different ways in the Bible. Uh, sometimes he refers to God's dwelling place. In Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, he kneeled on his knees and lifted up his hands to heaven and said, Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. So sometimes the word heaven uh, is used in that way. Uh, sometimes it's used of uh, the planets, the sun, the moon, and stars. God created them all, put them in place, and keeps them in place with marvelous precision. And the uh, 19th Psalm says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and it firmly showeth his handiwork. Sometimes the word heaven refers to the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, the earth, and the stars. And sometimes the word heaven refers to the atmosphere that surrounds uh, the earth. Uh, mo most of you probably have flown in a plane. <laughs> I have several times, and if you go up about 35,000 or 37,000 feet, uh, you're in heaven, this kind of heaven, the atmosphere that surrounds uh, the earth. So the word is used in three different ways in the Bible. And the only way you can tell what is meant in any passage is to study the context in which the word uh, is uh, found. Well, notice Peter says here the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. This earth, the curse, is going to be destroyed and uh, pass away. And then he raises this pertinent question. What manner of persons are we to be? What should be our conversation? Or more accurately, what should our conduct be in light of all this information? Knowing that these things are coming. What should be our uh, manner of life? In verse 14 he says, middle, in the middle of the verse, Be diligent. You may be found in him in peace without spot 
and wrinkle. Be diligent. Commit yourself to the Lord every day and live for him that we might experience the joy of eternity. When this old earth is wrapped in flames and this order of things pass away and is replaced by the new heavens and new earth. I say again, this is the testimony of the whole body of scripture. Then the third passage is in the Revelation chapter 21, the passage that Elwin read, or at least a part of it, and we'll sort of spill over into chapter 22 uh, two here as we go along. The Revelation is the final book in the canon of Scripture, as you know. And this book gives us the consummation of God's plan. You know, if we didn't have this final book in the Bible, God's plan would have ended on an unfinished note. It would have been incomplete. But the Revelation gives us the consummation of God's whole program when he sums up all things in Christ, when the saints of all the ages are gathered into God's eternal kingdom, the new heavens and new earth. Without that, I say, God's program would be incomplete. Okay, here in the Revelation, chapter 21, it's interesting to notice how often the phrase, no more, is used in this book. No more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, and so on. And we'll get into this as we go along. The Revelation, the final book in the canon of Scripture, is sort of the reverse of Genesis. You ever, try, ever compare the two books, the first book and the last book of the Bible? In the uh, book of Genesis, we have the first, uh, the beginning of sin, and Revelation, the end of sin. In the Revelation, we find the first uh, wedding, the first marriage. And uh, in the Revelation, we have the marriage of the Lamb, the church and Christ coming together. And uh, we find uh, the first death, but in the Revelation, there's no more death. See? In other words, uh, the whole Bible just sort of goes around like a ring and comes back to the same place where it started. It starts out in a state of perfection. The opening verses of Genesis. No sin, no death, God and man are dwelling together in that beautiful paradise. And paradise is an old Persian word that means garden or park. Adam and Eve lived in paradise in the Garden of Eden with his creator. But then sin came and man was driven out. And all these centuries man has been burdened under the curse. When we get to the Revelation we see all the curse is gone and all things are new. All these things that vex us so terribly today are no more. But uh, the whole creation is returned to its original state of purity in the opening verses of Genesis. Isn't that great? <laughs> Such a wonderful God can do uh, these wonderful things. Well, in this book, uh, often we find no more this and no more. Well, we prefer positives to negatives, usually. But sometimes uh, negative, the negative point uh, points to the uh, positive. It is positive to eliminate the negative. That's what I'm saying. It is positive to eliminate the negative. This book uh, so often says it's no more this, no more more, no more that, no more this, and so on. Other places in the Bible it says we shall have life eternal. Uh, other passages of the Bible are more positive in the, the approach. Description of the New Earth Kingdom is largely couched in negatives here in this book. The absence of things mentioned uh, pictures paradise. 
the beautiful paradise of God. I'd like to quote from a Sunday school lesson that we had a while back, June the 6th, 1999. Uh, this article was written by, this lesson that is, was written by Bill Wattell, who was a pastor of this church for a while. It's based on Matthew 13, and down to the bottom of the page, on page one he says, under the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God, was the heart of Jesus' message, the basis of his gospel. He said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke 4, verse uh, 43, the New American Standard. The preaching of the apostles and evangelists in Acts also underscores the kingdom message in conjunction with the name of Jesus Christ. In preaching the kingdom and converting people to his message, Jesus was laying the groundwork for the kingdom itself. So it may be said that the beginning of the kingdom occurred then, even though the kingdom has not come. Just the principles of life which characterize it. And Bill Wattell is quoting uh, Pastor Emory Macy on that uh, paragraph. And then on another paragraph, jumping over a little bit, he says uh, under verse 30, his comments on the Sunday School lesson Mark in Matthew 13, verse 30. The time of the harvest, he says, the time of the harvest is the end of the age. Verses 39 and 40, the NIV. The New Testament distinguishes between this present evil age and the age to come. Mark 10, verse 30, and Galatians 1, verse 4. This distinction has been blurred by the King James translation of Aeon uh, to world rather than age. In other words, in looking to a new world, we look to a new age. It's a new age on this planet. That, that's what uh, Bill is saying here, and I would certainly agree. Christ will send the uh, angels to gather out the ungodly to exclude them from his kingdom. The judgment of the terrors is of persons living on earth at the consummation of this age and should not be confused with the judgment of, of the dead at the close of the millennial age. The gathering and the burning were to be done with a view of burning them at some later date. And he's again quoting from uh, Emory Macy, another one of our pastors. I'd also like to share with you from this excellent book, There Really Is a Difference, by Reynolds Showers and published by the Friends of Israel in Belmar, New Jersey. Its heading of page 156 is the basis of the kingdom concept, the basis of the kingdom of God concept in the scriptures. He says the kingdom of God concept in the Bible is derived from the fact that God is sovereign. That's the most important thing we can remember in the Christian life. God is sovereign. He's in control. He can do what he has said he will do. No doubt about it. This is indicated by David's great expression recorded in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 12. Thine, O glory, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee. And thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. And then the comments following. In this expression, David declared at least three significant things concerning God. First, God has sovereign power or authority to rule. Second, he has a realm 
of subjects, all that is in the heaven and earthly realms, over which to exercise his sovereign rule. Third, he actually exercises his sovereign rule over that realm. All three of these things are essential in order to have a kingdom. Since God in his sovereignty possesses or does all these things, David declared that God has a kingdom. The sovereignty of God then is the basis of the kingdom of God concept in the Bible. The sovereignty of God is also the basis of the biblical philosophy of history. This was noted in an earlier chapter. Since both the kingdom of God concept in the Bible and the biblical philosophy of history are based upon the sovereignty of God, it would appear that both are related significantly to each other. Indeed, the kingdom of God concept is the heart of biblical philosophy of history and therefore is the central theme of the Bible. And he is right on. Uh, that is certainly uh, true. We have a great hope in God's coming kingdom. Well, now for a few minutes, we'd like to just uh, indicate or point out some of the things that will be uh, non-existent uh, in God's coming kingdom. First of all, there will be no more deception. Chapter 20 in the Revelation and verse 3 says, And cast him into the bottomless pit, the devil that is, and shut him up and uh, set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years uh, should be finished. And after that, he should be loosed a thousand years. Uh, during this thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, wickedness is to be subdued and held in check for a thousand years. Uh, because Christ and the church are ruling in truth and righteousness during that period. Most of you know at the end of that period, there is uh, a rebellion. Wickedness uh, comes up again, and God uh, totally and once and for all destroys the rebels that come against the Holy city but that's another subject so there'll be no more deception number two there'll be no more sea uh, chapter 21 and verse 1 says when john saw this new heavens and new earth he says there is no more sea well the sea is necessary to life as we know it on this planet at the same time it speaks of danger and disaster and constant restlessness for example, in the book of Isaiah, you might keep your finger there if you're following along. The book of Isaiah, chapter 57, if you'd rather just listen, that's fine. If you'd like to follow along in the, with the reading, that's fine too. Chapter 57 in the book of Isaiah, verse 20 says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace that my God to the wicked. In other words, I think John is saying when there's to be no more sea, there's no more of that which the sea symbolizes. The turmoil and confusion of this world system. We know in the kingdom, Christ is going to reign, we're told, from sea to sea. So I would suppose there will be sea. Uh, many scholars believe that we'll have much more land in the new earth than we do today. How much of the earth today is covered by water? I can't remember. Is it nine-tenths or eight-tenths or something? We just have a small amount of land in comparison to the vast oceans of the world. And some scholars think when God recreates and remakes, regenerates the earth, we may have more land and less water. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say one way or the other. 
but uh, the things symbolized by the sea will be absent. Life will be of a different order. Uh, there will be peace and quiet from sea to sea. Uh, sometimes we sing, I know I mentioned this before, sometimes we sing Isaac Watts' great song. Jesus shall reign, remember that? Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journey run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. That's a great song, 509 in our book, and it's based on the 72nd Psalm. The terminology of this hymn is just listed out of, the, uh, out of that psalm, and Isaac Watts uh, set it to music. And we've sung it, the church has sung it down through the ages. Okay, no more deception, no more sea, no more death. How about that? 21. In Revelation, verse 4 says as much. There shall be no more death. The Bible says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. That's a great verse of scripture. Take it home with you today. There shall be no more death. Uh, the last the enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death came because of sin. Adam brought it in uh, upon the human race. Christ will remove it. And this is what the whole Bible is about. Adam got us in this mess. Christ, the second Adam, is getting us out of it. If you keep that in mind as you read the scriptures, it'll make, the, the scripture will make a lot better sense to you. Sin and death and all these things that vex us, uh, these things are a part of the curse that came upon the human race because of Adam's transgression. Through Christ, it's all going to be removed. No more sickness, pain, sorrow, death, no more curse on the earth. The earth is under the curse today. We have the briars and thorns and thistles and weeds and insects and uh, the Nile virus more recently. All these things are part of the curse. The Bible says there shall, in the new earth kingdom, there shall be no more curse. All of this is brought about by the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will remove that uh, uh, curse. And verse 5, uh, God says, I make all things new. Not all new things, but I make all things new. And Revelation 21 verse 5 is the last reference uh, to the word new in the Bible. Moving on, number four, no more sorrow. That's in verse four, two. Tears will have no place in God's tomorrow. Cemeteries, memorial parks, and hospitals will be dispensed with. They belong to the things that have passed away when we come to this point in time. Think of all the sorrow in this world. And much of it has come upon innocent people but there's coming a time when it will be no more. I like Jeremiah chapter 31. Again, you might keep your finger there. I'm looking at Jeremiah 31 now, verses 29 and 30. In those days they shall say no more, their fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity, every man, that either star grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Today, uh, children often, often suffer because of what their parents do, or what their peers do, or because somebody they don't even know uh, maybe uh, does something that brings this sorrow and pain upon them. But then everyone 
will suffer for his own iniquity, the Bible says. And then number five, no more pain. That's in verse 4 too. Revelation 21 verse 4. There shall be no more pain. Just think right now, the pain that's in this world. Uh, people are injured, people have disease, and the medical people do such a wonderful job in helping us relieve that pain and suffering. Uh, but in God's kingdom, there'll be no more pain. <clears throat> Oftentimes, homes suffer because of alcohol or drugs. Just think of what alcohol and drugs, this suffering pain that these things bring upon many families today. And we brush shoulders with some of these people all the time. When the kingdom, the Bible says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And the lame man shall leap as a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. That's Isaiah 35, uh, verses 5 and 6. Uh, this curse is on the human race. We're still burdened under it today. But there's a day coming when God's kingdom comes that the curse will be no more. And all these things that vex us so terribly today will pass away. And we'll have a new home, a new uh, life, and uh, as I talked about a few Sundays, we'll have a new name. The Lord's going to give us a new name to go along with our new life in this new kingdom. Okay, number six, there'll be no temple there. Verse 22, that's interesting. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. A temple is a consecrated place set apart for God's habitation. In the new earth, or this new creation, there will be no need of a temple. It's the whole of God's dwelling will be the temple of God. The whole new earth will be a temple where we'll worship and praise God throughout the endless years of eternity. Notice verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be their God. We're going to dwell with God in the new heavens and new earth. Remember back in the beginning of the Garden of Eden with uh, Adam and Eve and God, they dwell together. God walked in the cool of the day in the garden. They had this, this uh, fellowship together, but that was disrupted because of sin. Through Christ and his redemptive work, that relationship is to be restored when the kingdom uh, covers the whole earth. And how well will the kingdom cover the earth? The Bible says in Habakkuk 2 verse 14, As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And also in Numbers 14, verse 21, As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, the waters cover the bottom of the sea pretty well, wouldn't you say? In the new heavens, new earth, the knowledge of God will be like that. It'll just be overflowing. Won't be any sinners, won't be any pain or sickness, sorrow, death. Everything will be perfect throughout the billions and billions of years of eternity. It's worth uh, whatever we have to do to sacrifice to get there, to my way of thinking. Nothing uh, can uh, compare uh, with that. John F. Walbert is one of the uh, 
popular Bible scholars today. I've been to many of his prophetic conferences and I have about a half a dozen, maybe eight of his books in my study. Uh, he's just a great scholar. And John Walvert wrote in making a distinction between the church and the kingdom, he says, a connection exists between kingdom and church, but they are not identical, even in the present age. Therefore, the kingdom is not confined within the frontiers of the church. That's the end of the quotation. Uh, we live in what we call the church age today. The day that the Lord is building his church. Uh, the ecclesia, that's the Greek word that means called out ones. The church is called out of all nations out of this world system to be, a, uh, to be God's church. The body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the body, and we are members of his body, of his bones, and his flesh, and so on. See? We as believers will inherit the kingdom when Christ comes again and, and sets up the kingdom. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Our inheritance is in the age uh, to come. The presence of God and Christ sanctifies this coming kingdom that we're talking about. So no part needs to be partitioned off for worship. I think that's why John said, I didn't see any temple. The whole thing is a temple. Today, you know, we have temples and places of worship where we come out of the world and, and into the temple or the church building to worship. But then there won't be any temple. The whole thing will be a temple. God's presence will fill the whole earth, the whole kingdom. And notice the center of all this glory is God and the Lamb, uh, John says. They're so closely linked you can't separate them. The Father and the Son. That's the relationship that God and Christ have. The Father and the Son. Now John, uh, the writer of this book, was exiled on the island of Patmos which is a little dot in the Aegean Sea, which is the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, the Lord appeared to him in dreams and visions and said to John, what you see right in a book. God revealed to him all these dreams and visions, these revelations. And John wrote them down in a book. And we have them in our book, the last book in the New Testament, the Revelation. That's what this book is, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, written by John, one of the twelve. John wrote five books of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, and the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Revelation. John, the writer of five books of the New Testament. Then moving on, the holy city is referred to as the, the uh, New Jerusalem, the Lamb's wife. That's in verses 9 and 10. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which the seven vials full of, uh, of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And they say the same thing in verse 1. He saw the holy city coming down from God out of heaven. Notice that word down, D-O-W-N. You can't misunderstand that, can you? This holy city comes down from God out of heaven, comes down on the new earth, uh, the city prepared as a bride for her husband. This is a great hope uh, that we have. The gates of this city are open. 
but not the sin. Notice verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Verse 27. And there shall no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you would enter into that great city, then you need to come to the Lamb today. Then get rid of your sin, be redeemed, and be prepared for this great kingdom that is coming. If you expect to spend eternity in the presence of God and the Lamb, then see that you become acquainted with them uh, and have their presence with you now. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel at home. You know, if we're going to be with Christ and dwell with him in the hereafter, we have to come and know him in the here and now. We have to know him as our Savior and our Lord, and then we become an heir of all these great and precious things that God has for us in his word. Don't expect to see God in the future uh, if we can't find him now. You know, God's not hard to find. As Paul said in uh, Acts 17 in his great message on Mars Hill to the Greek philosophers, God is not very far from any one of us. <laughs> God is everywhere. Anyone can find God if he really wants to find it. Uh, the Bible says, that God says, you will seek me and find me. And what's the rest of the verse? When you seek for me with all your heart. We can find God. No, no problem if we really want to find him. Okay, number seven. No darkness. Verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine. And it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. That's the holy city. For there shall be no night there. The sun and moon were given to lighten the darkness of this world. But in the New Jerusalem, apparently there is a greater light. So great uh, is that light uh, that the sun will be blotted out uh, just as the stars uh, dim into, pale into uh, insignificance when the sun rises in the morning. You look up on a dark night, you see all kinds of stars if it's clear and away from the glare of the city. But here, there'll be no need of the sun, moon, the stars, of the, the Lord God Almighty and his son are the light of it, the lamb, he says, is the light uh, thereof. There'll be no periods of darkness as uh, we experience here. Now, darkness often stands for sin in Scripture, too. We need to keep that in mind. There'll be no uh, sin. Darkness symbolizes sin. Okay, number eight, there'll be no more sin. And verse 27 again, and there shall be no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they shall that are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's important that we have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. We have a song that we sometimes sing. Is my name written there on the page white and fair in the book of thy kingdom? Is my name written there? Well, that's a good question for us to consider. Only the redeemed will enter into this kingdom I'm talking about. The ones who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ by way of Calvary. We're free forever from uh, the tormenting 
of the old sinful nature when we come into God's eternal kingdom having been redeemed by the cross. The city of God will need no police force or civil courts. All will be holy and righteous. Notice Isaiah again, chapter 35. The book of Isaiah, chapter 35. This is clearly a kingdom passage. I'm going to begin with verse 8. Isaiah 35, verse 8. And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness, notice. The unclean shall not pass over it. This shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed, notice, shall walk there. Verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isn't that another uh, great passage? The world's sorrow is really the fruit of sin, and we bear that today, and we will bear it till our last day. But with sin abolished, the sorrow flies, you see. We will have uh, a new name, a new life, uh, a new resurrected body, and all that to go along with the new heavens and the new earth. Finally, number nine, there is no more curse. Chapter 22 in the Revelation, in verse 3. This verse says, there shall be no more curse. Far as we know, the curse is found only on the earth. I don't know the curse being in place else on this earth. I say we have the briars and thorns and and thistles and insects and the sickness and pain and disease today, these are all a part of the curse brought upon the human race because of Adam. But Jesus Christ has redeemed us and there won't be any of that in the new heavens and new earth, God's eternal uh, kingdom. So as we look through our thoughts here from Isaiah 65 and 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21, there will be no more Deception, no more sea, or the things symbolized by the sea. No more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more temple, no more darkness, no more sin, no more curse. These things will be no more in God's tomorrow. And I say uh, we need to strive to enter into it. Entering into God's kingdom is worth whatever uh, we may have to sacrifice in this life. Our closing song is number 95, and it's uh, based on our theme that we've been talking about here today. I'd just like to read uh, some of these words. And this is actually a second coming song. Number 95, Joy to the World. We always think of Christmas when we read this, when we sing this. And it is a Christmas song. But it's more than a Christmas song. It's more of a second coming song. See, Christ came the first time and he's coming again. See, When Jesus comes a second time, we'll see the fulfillment of these words. They were not fulfilled at Christ's first coming. Although we call this a Christmas carol and awful singing at Christmas, that's great, but it's really a second coming song. Notice the words. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Well, what about his first coming? Did the earth receive her king? I don't think so. They said, we don't want him. 
They, his own people turned him over to the Romans and had him crucified. But when he comes the second time, the earth will indeed receive her king. The second stanza. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, that men employ their song. While fields and floods and rocks and hills and plain repeat the sounding joy. And so the nations of the world are not singing that song today. They're at war with each other more than that. And the third stanza. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Do you have any thorns today? They're still with us. And the insects and the briars and all that, that's a part of the curse, still with us today. Christ didn't do that in his first coming. When he comes a second time, he'll do away with all that. See, The uh, fourth stanza, he'll rule the world in truth and grace and make the nations prove. Is Jesus ruling over the nations today and our nations in submission to his will and rule today? I don't think so. When he comes a second time, the nation of this world will submit to his governmental rule, or else they'll be crushed, you see. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, or the Lord has come, and he's coming again. And when he comes again, uh, these words will be literally fulfilled.